his mother and father told him from the time he was a really, really little boy that it was his job to carry the family name, to serve the Republic, but they're much starker in their language. I mean, these are good New England Puritan, you know, traits that they want to bring out in their son. So it's, you know, he sails across the Atlantic when he's not even 10 with his father in wartime conditions. They're chased by British schooners. And he gets letters from his mom constantly that say something along the lines of, keep your morals. It's really important to the public and to me. If you don't keep your morals, it would have been better that you went down to the bottom of the ocean. He gets letters from his father. He actually has a much closer relationship with his father in many ways that say something along the lines of, considering the advantages that you've been given in life, if you don't rise to the top not only of your profession, but of your country, you will have squandered everything that was given to you. John Quincy Adams didn't squander everything. He reached the very top to become president of the United States just like his father, John Adams. But as we'll learn, John Quincy was much more influential on his way up and on his way down than he was during his time at the nation's pinnacle. I'm Lillian Cunningham, and this is the sixth episode of Presidential. Shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A state which will live in infamy. That was Charles Adele speaking at the beginning. He's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, but he's currently serving in the State Department. He's also the author of the book Nation Builder, John Quincy Adams and the Grand Strategy of the Republic. Now, this episode is, of course, about our sixth president, John Quincy Adams. But perhaps what this episode is really about is a single unique and all-important presidential leadership trait. And that is the ability to work with Congress. We're about to see how lacking that one trait can break a presidency. But first, let's take a step back for a moment and revisit what's been going on up until now. The United States has declared and secured its independence from England, and we've had five American presidents already. The country itself is not only becoming more powerful on the global stage, but it's actually getting physically bigger. It's buying up territory so that it can expand from the East Coast all the way toward the Pacific. Now, John Quincy Adams has had a front row seat for all of this. He was alive as a young boy during the American Revolution, and of course his dad, John Adams, was one of the founding fathers. Now, when John Quincy is only 26 years old, he serves as a diplomat abroad while George Washington is president. And then again, he serves as a diplomat when his father, John Adams, is president and when James Madison is too. By the time James Monroe is president, John Quincy Adams is named Secretary of State. And though we haven't really been talking about him in earlier episodes, he is actually behind a lot of the territorial expansion and the big diplomatic moments we've been seeing up until now. In fact, he was so skilled at diplomacy that today there are portraits of John Quincy Adams all over the State Department. And actually, one of the main diplomatic reception rooms there is also named after him. Particularly those who study and trace foreign policy, his name is really well known. I mean, he's generally considered... 
um, the most successful, maybe the second most, but generally tops the list of most successful secretaries of state. Uh, he was in office for eight years straight. Most surveys posit him as the central player on foreign policy for the entire 19th century. Uh, and that's because um, he is enormously successful as a diplomat. I mean, his accomplishments as Secretary of State, he not only writes the Monroe Doctrine, um, he also is the first person to push for and secure American territorial expansion all the way out to the Pacific. Um, so he has a really good run of it. If you know Adams for anything, you know him for his most famous speech, that America should uh, not go forth in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, now, this has been endlessly quoted. In fact, it might be one of the most quoted phrases in all of U.S. foreign policy history. And so what is it that particularly drew you to studying John Quincy Adams? Um, so many, many years ago, uh, when I was working at the Council of Foreign Relations in New York City, my old boss handed me a very small book and made the argument, this very small book, that there were three grand strategists in our nation's history, really three grand strategic traditions. Uh, the first being uh, John Quincy Adams, the second uh, being Franklin Roosevelt, and the third, maybe not as a grand strategist, but what George W. Bush was doing, the argument went, was not totally a historical, but did draw on certain trends from earlier in American history. The most interesting part of that book by far, because that's a really somewhat controversial argument, at least that latter part, uh, was the first, that John Quincy Adams was the primary architect, the primary strategist of America's growth to power throughout the entire 19th century, laying down the lines all the way into the 20th century. And I thought that was a fabulously interesting argument, and I wanted to see if it was true. Okay, so if John Quincy Adams is one of the grand strategists in American history, why do you think it is that so many Americans don't think of him as one of our great presidents or, you know, probably don't even really know much about him? Uh, a couple of different reasons. First of all, he's not a founder per se. Uh, John Adams people remember uh, John Quincy Adams a little bit less. Uh, second, maybe we don't like political dynasties, so that's a little bit of a point why, uh, there. Uh, but then I think more importantly is he's a one-term president. Uh, he's the only one-term president other than his dad until you get you know, to Martin Van Buren much later on. Uh, and I would go further and say that his presidency is more or less a failure. Adams really, I mean, almost every single policy that he rolls out and advances as president fails. Um, so that, that's one real reason why most Americans know him. I mean, you know the name, but he's lower on the list. He's also not a particularly pleasant personality, and there's <laughs> something to be said for that, too. You know, um, for those people who have read David McCullough's uh, biography of John Adams or have seen that wonderful HBO series, yeah. um, if you remember uh, John Adams, right, uh, there are a couple of shining characteristics of John Adams. He's smart. He knew it. He wanted you didn't know that, and as you know, you might anticipate, he was pretty annoying about that. Well, all these uh, traits uh, are carried out to the nth degree by his son, but he has none of the mellowing and humor that his father <laughs> has. You know him very well. Now, would you set him up on a blind date with someone you well, knew? Uh, it depended who I was uh, <laughs> okay, setting him up me? on a date with. Um, and then I don't know. I like you. I'm not sure that I want to say I would. Um, you know, so maybe. I've spent a lot of time with uh, old JQA. Uh, and I would say that, uh, look, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Um, he's irascible. 
he has a very challenging relationship with his wife for the first 30 plus years of their <laughs> marriage um but he is brilliant uh he's interesting he's fascinating to talk to when he's not feeling bad for himself which is often he is one of the best conversationalists there are i mean it's interesting that when uh, foreign dignitaries come to the united states and i'm talking about really the biggies uh charles dickens alexi de tocqueville the marquis de lafayette they all make sure that you know number one on their social agenda is getting together with John Quincy Adams. Mm. Uh, not only because he's a great uh, conversationalist, but because his views of the United States and of foreign policy are so expansive and so interesting. Uh, I mean, this is a pretty <laughs> spectacular man uh, that when you can engage him, those who are close to him, uh, you know, both intellectuals, but some politicians too, and also those who he advocated on behalf of, uh, thought he was just spectacular. Um, but he was cold. He was remote. His own son said he was impenetrable, and his grandson, the famous historian Henry Adams, said that he had an inner nature so complex that he was an enigma to all of his contemporaries. Uh, what that means for your or his <laughs> dating life, I'm not really sure. Um, and this uh, can't really speak to his dating life, um, but I, I will say that not only is he interesting, as we talked about, he can speak multiple languages, but here's an interesting one. You probably have a uh, mental image of him as a little bit rotund, and that's that's an Adams kind of trait. But he is a very vigorously healthy president, and you know he's he's got a lot of things going on. So he will walk to Congress and time himself every time and want to know. But what he was particularly hung up about of was walking down to the Potomac, stripping off all his clothes. Uh, he'd keep a pair of green goggles on <laughs> and hopping in for you know half an hour to an hour long swim. Uh, you know, there's. There are apocryphal tales of a reporter, an enterprising young reporter who couldn't get a female reporter, who could not get an interview with him, who, when he makes it back to the shore one day, says, Mr. Adams, I have your clothes. Would you like to give me that interview now? Now, I can't find any evidence for it. It's a great story. All right. Well, uh, we're we're going to switch topics. <laughs> we're going to switch topics here and back up to how he became president. Let's plant ourselves in the year 1824. JQA has been Secretary of State for all eight years while Monroe was president, and now there's a new election. By this point, the country is going through a time of relative peace and stability. The politics aren't even as bitter at the moment as they used to be. There's really only one political party anymore, and that's the Democratic-Republican Party, which is the party that Thomas Jefferson started. So we have this new election, and there are four candidates who are really technically all part of the same party, but they kind of represent different factions of it. Anyway, the candidate who gets the most votes is Andrew Jackson. He's the self-made man from the South who's been gaining fame as a military hero. But Jackson doesn't have enough votes to have the majority, so the House of Representatives gets to decide who's ultimately elected to be president. And they choose one of the other candidates, which is, of course, John Quincy Adams. All right, so technically the process is fair according to the rules at the time, but Jackson and his supporters are in an uproar. 
They say there must have been a corrupt bargain. Basically, they think John Quincy must have bribed the Speaker of the House, who's Henry Clay. They think he said, Henry, if you make me president, I'll make you my Secretary of State. Adams does, afterwards, name Clay as his Secretary of State as his first political appointment. And in some ways, that, you know, that, that, that tanks his presidency before it even begins. Uh, because in many ways, he has the taint, whether or not it's real, of a quid pro quo, which Jackson and his supporters are happy to uh, fan the flames of. This election basically lights the match that reignites bitter partisan politics. Jackson supporters convince most of Congress to just gang up against JQA and block every single thing that he tries to do as president. And John Quincy isn't helping matters. He doesn't approve of that type of partisan politicking, and he thinks he's above it, so he just refuses to play the game with them. But now he's a president who has basically no political support, and it's at a time that he really needs it, because he comes into office with this vision for the most progressive plan the country has yet seen. He has this whole strategy for how the government is going to build national roads and schools and research centers and military academies. That seems pretty normal to us today, but back then people were like, you want the government to do what? He's just so convinced that this is the right thing that he doesn't even bother to be politically delicate or compromising. He just walks right into a hostile Congress where this idea is unpopular and lays it all out for them. He is not willing to do what is politically necessary, even as he understands that politics are shifting and shifting in a much more partisan fashion. He just can't bring himself to do it because it is simply a betrayal of what he thought he was meant to do. And it's, you know, in some ways it's very tragic. Uh, You watch Henry Clay, who's probably the most astute political uh, operator of the day, as Secretary of State, as primary political advisor to the president, telling Adams, you know, there's record of this saying, some of these policies that you're advocating, I totally agree with. You cannot say this. The populace is not behind you, and it is way too bold. Yeah. This is not the only person who says this. In fact, his entire cabinet tells him on his first inaugural address, this is the most progressive vision of government you've ever seen. Scale it back. Uh, you know, implement some of it. Uh, shelve some of it. But don't push this forward. And Adam says, you know what? I'm not running for a higher office. I was willing to make compromises on the way to get to being president. What am I waiting for? Ignores their, I would argue, very good political advice in many ways. And just as they had predicted, you know, the the long knives are out for him from the beginning. Here's Fred Kaplan on the phone. He's the author of John Quincy Adams' American Visionary. Well, one of the things I think that we can learn today about the challenges of being an effective president is how difficult it is to be an effective president if you have strong principles and uh, believe deeply in the uh, desirability of making significant changes uh, in our complex political system in which the president is not an independent actor, but has to deal with a Congress and how uh, a Congress can, in effect, not only limit, 
but neuter a president's ability to make transformational changes. I asked Charles Adele if he thinks that this has to do with a leadership deficiency that John Quincy Adams has, or if his ineffective presidency is really just to be blamed on the external circumstances of having a stonewalling Congress. Um, what about his sort of failure as president is that he didn't have the temperament and the leadership traits for that role versus just these sort of external circumstances? Yeah, it's that a great question uh, because most people look at Adams, see a great disjunction, right? I mean, he's enormously successful as Secretary of State. Uh, after the presidency, mm-hmm. he's an enormously successful congressman opposing uh, an increasingly loud voice slavery. Uh, and then how do you explain his presidency? Uh, because he's really not successful. And if you read his journals as he goes through this, and he's an extensive diarist, he's massively, I mean, almost clinically depressed while he is president. That's not his normal reaction to events. I mean, so how do you explain this presidency? Because it seems really different than the other stages. Um, You know, part of this is temperament. Uh, I mean, he is an advocate. He's dogged. He is, much like his father, the smartest person in the room and almost unbearable in letting everyone know that. And in some ways, perfectly suited to be a policy advocate, right? I mean, sink your teeth into an issue, pursue it as hard as you can, take on all the counterarguments and kind of shut them down with your amazing rebuttals. And straight through his tenure as Secretary of State, he is constantly uh, a lone voice in the Monroe cabinet that wins on major issues, not on every single one. But he's such a dogged and tenacious and logically persuasive advocate that he's really well suited for that position. Whether or not that type of personality is the same type of personality that is constitutionally well suited to make compromise, uh, that's an open question. And in his case, I think it serves him not quite as well. Uh, Temperamentally, he just isn't willing to take on advice uh, or compromise where he should compromise. This is the big question about presidential leadership that John Quincy Adams leaves us. When should a president compromise or not compromise? How great is a plan if you can't make any of it happen? Nearly 200 years after JQA's time in the White House, the art of compromise is still one of the toughest skills for presidents to master. Katie Zesma is a colleague of mine at the Washington Post. She's covered the White House for us, and now she's out on the campaign trail covering the election. All right, so Katie, obviously campaigning was not the same back then as it is now, but I imagine that what we saw with John Quincy Adams' election is still an issue in some ways, right? That that contentious and bitter elections can spill over into someone's presidency and make it really hard for them to effectively govern. I think campaigns are always pretty bitterly fought now and they're always, you know, kind of they get kind of nasty at at certain points. But, you know, the reality is that being on the campaign trail and saying what you're going to do and then getting into the White House and attempting to do something are two totally, totally different things. You know, President Obama said he was going to close Guantanamo Bay and it's still open almost seven years later. Um, So it's just really not always easy to get through the agenda that, that you say you're going to do on the campaign trail. Um, well, so what about specifically that question of working with Congress? I mean, seeing what you did of what a president has to navigate in order to get 
his vision and his plans through Congress. Let's go back to John Quincy Adams' time. He has this stonewalling Congress. Everyone's basically decided to gang up on him and not let any of his ideas through. Is there anything that a really great presidential leader could do in that circumstance? Or, you know, I mean, is it John Quincy Adams' fault, do you think, in some way that he couldn't get around that? Well, in some ways, I mean, he had such a a contentious way of, of getting in in some ways it was almost from the beginning it was it was cook they picked him but you know also his personality wasn't the type where he was gonna go along to get along or he wasn't you know going to going to compromise and he was he was pretty set in his ways and he knew exactly what what he wanted to do and congress didn't didn't want to do that and you know the reality is you need a little bit of meeting with people trying to meet people in the middle at least attempting to work work across the aisle a little bit in order you know in order to get to get things done president obama hasn't had the greatest relationship with congress either you know he had a speech on bipartisanship recently where he talked a bit about it and you know in many ways for him that's why you see some of his executive orders and executive actions because he he hasn't been able to to do this stuff legislatively so he's just kind of done it on his own. We seem to have a really complicated relationship with the word compromise. Overall, as an American people, we seem to send kind of mixed messages about whether we want that or not from our leaders. This is actually one of the most interesting things I found on the campaign trail. I find it so fascinating how, you know, most people today are saying, especially I cover the Republican race, and people are saying, you know, we we want someone who's just going to go in and give him hell and shake up Washington and all of the entrenched interests. Um, I cover Senator Ted Cruz, and he calls himself an uncompromising conservative, and he wants to shake up the Washington cartel. And people really respond well to this. They're very excited to hear it. But there are questions, too, about people who say, well, you know, you're going to go in and and you're going to shake things up, but how are you going to actually get anything done? You know, you need to kind of work across the aisle and you need to have relationships with with these people. And, and, you know, the way he answers it is he says, well, you know, I have worked with with Democrats before and I have worked with with other Republicans before. Um, You know, people also point out he's not very well liked on Capitol Hill. But, you know, there, there is this kind of two sides of people right now, this idea of of not compromising and in, in you know going into Washington and in shaking up the establishment versus actually getting work done is something I think is, is on the minds of a lot of voters. Um, when you look at John Quincy Adams' time in office and his challenges in office, is there anything else that still rings true to you today? Well, you know, I think, you know, the president has a specific personality in John Quincy Adams was, you know, he, he knew what he wanted to do. He had all of these big plans and he wasn't willing to compromise to, to get them done. And he wasn't able to be because of that. And I think that definitely still rings true. This this idea that, you know, the president often has has one idea and Congress often has another idea and meeting in the middle isn't always happening. And, and I think that that's something that we've definitely seen multiple times since his presidency. In some ways, this is the leadership trait at the root of how John Quincy Adams can be so successful in so many other roles, but not as president. I spoke more with Charles Adele about this. Uh, Adams is a really good conceptual thinker, uh, one of the best that there is. Uh, And, you know, he has a very clear vision of what he wants for the republic. He's able to prioritize between competing demands. 
he's a he's a fantastic political orator and writer, but not necessarily so good at taking uh, the political temperature of the republic. You know, being a strategist means both conception and execution. I think he's got the conception part down. Um, I think the execution part is wanting when he is president. Uh, he's not willing to make those trade-offs and compromises. He wants to have his vision pure. And so in some ways, when he deals with public opinion, which is a necessary part of being a presidential leader, um, he has no aptitude uh, for pulsing where it is. Uh, so to your question, what it means to be an effective president, uh, it is not only having a strategic conception, which I think is of paramount importance, uh, but also being able to act along those prioritized interests in a way that you can gain traction, bring people in who you need to. Uh, he has, again, I mentioned that Clay was an advisor. Uh, Thurlow Weed comes down from New York State, a terrific politician, uh, and says, look, I can start organizing people for you on this. I mean, and we see the Jacksonians are beginning to organize their own political clubs. Uh, we can do this too, and I think we can defeat them in a number of ways. And he says, I, I won't have this type of conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, the president should be above a lot of those things, but he can't be disengaged from them. Here's Fred Kaplan again. One of the things John Quincy Adams had learned from his father is that uh, integrity was everything. Moral rectitude and independence of character were uh, the standards by which he wanted to be judged and to judge himself. Uh, John Adams was a more spontaneous and free-flowing character than his son. John Adams had uh, a gift for conversation and for effusiveness and for outspoken uh, liveliness that uh, John Quincy Adams, his son, did not have. And perhaps somewhat in reaction to his father, who he thought misjudged and mistreated by uh, his contemporaries, uh, especially when he was uh, defeated by uh, Thomas Jefferson in the election of 1800. Uh, Probably John Quincy Adams uh, developed some of the uh, casing around his personality, the armor that he wore in daily life, Uh, to protect himself, to make himself less vulnerable uh, to the kinds of criticism that his father received, because in John Quincy Adams' view, his father was too open and too uh, engaged in a way that made him vulnerable. But disengaging didn't work either. Over the course of JQA's struggling first term, Jackson has organized a strong base of support and has started a new political party, the Democratic Party. He obliterates John Quincy Adams in the next election, just obliterates him and sweeps him out of office before JQA has had a chance to make any real progress on his agenda. When John Quincy Adams uh, was defeated for re-election in 1828, he went, understandably, into a funk, got uh, quite depressed, uh, and wondered what he was going to do with the rest of his life. Uh, among 
other concerns he had was his self-awareness that his whole life had been devoted to public service. He had been brought up to believe that public service was the highest priority that any citizen could have. His biggest anxiety and concern was, could he possibly have a post-presidential life in the years that were remaining to him in which he could be reasonably happy without, at the same time, being engaged in a public life and a public career and doing things uh, for his country. And uh, he tried, when he retired to Quincy, Massachusetts, to uh, engage himself totally and happily in reading and in writing, in scholarship, in uh, writing a biography of his father. And he discovered uh, in a reasonably short time that this was not satisfactory, uh, that he felt an emptiness, that he, he felt a, a, a lack of mission. So what ends up happening? John Quincy Adams returns to public service. He becomes a congressman. And listen, this is pretty astounding. It's the first and the last time that a former president has ever done so after his time in the White House. He serves in Congress for 18 years, and he dedicates the bulk of his effort there to the fight against slavery. He's learned from being president, and he is a much better gauger of public opinion and where it stands, particularly on slavery. Uh, so he's willing to harness public opinion, be out in front of it, but not too far out in front of it, uh, harness several you know, more radical uh, politicians who are abolitionist-leaning, uh, broadcast things in a while. I mean, he's much better at doing what he couldn't do at, as president. Now, partially that's because he's a congressman. Uh, and he becomes increasingly, in many ways, a single-issue congressman, which he finds all-consuming. So do you think he actually was a better congressman for having served as president? Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I, I think the answer has to be yes. He's simply better at fighting and harnessing public opinion because of how he has failed previously. Uh, I mean, it is spectacular to understand what he does when he is congressman. He goes in, and slavery is one of several issues, but increasingly becomes the issue. Um, what he does, so I'm going to give you a seventh grade quiz, which you may or may not remember, the gag rule, right? Uh, slavery has become so controversial that you can't say the S word on the floor of Congress. Right? You'll be censured for it. So he thinks this is appalling and is yet another way that the Southern politicians are kind of leading the nation astray from promoting liberty. They can't even discuss things. That's not even liberal debate. Uh, so at one point, he sets himself up to be censured. I mean, he, he rolls out a petition. This is an ongoing eight-year battle that he has with the gag rule, and he ultimately wins it. But, you know, great instance is he sets himself up to be censured by rolling out petitions that are so controversial and so beyond the pale in some ways uh, that, you know, Southern congressmen jump up and say, censure him. And he said, oh, you want to censure me? Well, I have to defend myself. I'm going to put mm -hmm. myself on trial because you want to 
censure me or maybe kick me out of Congress, which maybe they do, maybe they don't. And so then he gives two weeks straight of floor speeches, uh, two weeks straight of floor speeches. Uh, he also makes sure that every one of the speeches that he is making um, are written uh, as quickly as possible after and distributed as widely as possible. So these begin to gain traction in the North as well as towards Southern supporters. So from a procedural point of view, uh, he's more willing to fight uh, and he's better at it and knowing that it's not only in Congress, but also in the larger American polity that he has to do this. How is it that slavery becomes the real focus of his? What happens during his presidency causes him increasingly to reflect that is the issue that America has to deal with. Uh, So two touchstones for that. One is before he's even president. He's secretary of state when the Missouri controversy breaks out. Now, the way that cabinet meetings happened back in the day uh, is the president on major issues would solicit the opinions of every major cabinet officer. Uh, and Adams comes out stridently and said, the federal government has a role and a stake in prohibiting the spread of slavery. Of course, this is the issue that Abraham Lincoln later runs on. Uh, he's overruled. He is overruled fundamentally in that cabinet. That's one of the major debates that he loses as sex state. And in his diary, the longest passages, and I should say there are almost 17,000 pages worth of passages, <laughs> To my mind, when I was doing my research, I did not find any longer nor any more anguish passages than in the days that he's debating that in the cabinet. And when I say longer, yeah, absolutely right. He's writing 10, 15 pages every night detailing not only what's happening in the cabinet, but him understanding all of a sudden the major vast implications. That this is 1820 and he is seeing a civil war coming. Uh, So that's during his secretary of stateship. During his presidency, he's increasingly opposed uh, by, you know, a a second party that arises, the Jacksonians, where in retrospect, at least, he sees more and more slave interests in it. So increasingly, when he looks back at his presidency, he sees that slavery is the cause which has stopped the forward progress of the nation. It's also the cause that shot down his presidency. So I think for personal vindictiveness reasons, for personal retribution, but also really to advance the vision that he sees for the country, this is the singular issue that he devotes himself to. If you listened to our second episode on his father, John Adams, you might remember that John Adams took on the really unpopular task of defending British soldiers after the Boston Massacre. Well, we see something similar happen with John Quincy, While he's congressman, John Quincy Adams decides that, pro bono, he will be the lawyer to defend the African slaves who staged a mutiny aboard the slave ship Amistad. The case goes to the Supreme Court, and JQA draws on the power of the ideals of liberty and equality set forth in the Declaration of Independence to win them their freedom. Just go rent uh, (laughs) Amistad with... um... Uh, Anthony Hopkins playing John Morgan Quincy Adams. David. It is a terrific <laughs> depiction of him. I think he's got him spot on. Uh, it's, I mean, they don't do Supreme Court arguments like they do uh, <laughs> back in the day because it's an eight-hour speech. I mean, and he has it published right a- afterwards. But the uh, frame of it is you have to understand the Constitution and frame it in light of the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, in fact, this is a brilliantly simple argument. 
it is the Gettysburg Address, right? That's Lincoln's argument that when he says, you know, four score and seven years ago, he ain't alluding to the Constitution but the Declaration of Independence. And what Adams tries to do in that argument is give the Declaration the force of law as opposed to simply principles. Just about every scholarly analysis of John Quincy Adams would give the same assessment, that his public service in Congress after his presidency is far more powerful than what he ever accomplishes as president. I asked Katie Zesma whether she thinks there's a lesson here. Do you, what's your sense of whether, whether we would be better off if more presidents did what John Quincy Adams did and went into Congress after being president? I think it would be really interesting and potentially beneficial to have a person who went in and said, hey guys, listen, I've I've literally been on the other side of this. I know what it takes to actually get this done from their side. And now that I'm here, I know what happens from our side. So yeah, I think that there could, you know, there could be some benefit. Will it actually happen? I really, really don't think so. I don't think any president is going to go back to Congress. I know President Obama has said that he plans to be, uh, you know, drinking out of a coconut on an island when he's out of office. So I, I highly doubt he'll be going to Capitol Hill anytime soon. So to wrap up, I asked both Fred Kaplan and Charles Adele what they think we would be missing if we never had John Quincy Adams as a president. He is to be honored for uh, at least two important things. And one is that he anticipated public policies that eventually came to be a characteristic of a hallmark of uh, modern American culture. The other thing for which he is to be uh, remembered and respected, and uh, about which I wish his influence was even more fully felt, and that is for the uh, integrity and the honorableness of his personal character and his public life. I think of John Quincy Adams as an amazingly successful human being and public figure, though his presidency uh, does not carry the full weight of that claim. We'd be missing the Pacific Ocean as part of the country. and That's a little ungenerous. I mean, I think things would probably go that way, but, you know, he is the one who kind of structured the broad frame of how we were going to advance. That's pretty important. Um, uh, a second thing that we've been missing without him, um, he was a strident advocate for the United States operating, in some senses, ruthlessly uh, for its national interests, but never forgetting the moral vision that was supposed to illuminate those actions and to which we were supposed to progress towards. Uh, look, he doesn't live to see uh, the fruition of any of his policies in some ways, um, certainly on anti-slavery attacks. But he lays the groundwork uh, upon which the broad contours are, are struck. I mean, Lincoln's political hero was always Henry Clay. I think he's much closer to John Quincy Adams. Uh, not in temperament. Uh, Lincoln, you should definitely go on a date with. I mean, just, I mean, just the best, most moral statesman that we've ever had. Uh, but in terms of how one was to attack slavery, uh, how one was to go about it, 
even the Emancipation Proclamation, which he alludes to 20 years prior to its coming. Um, I, I think these are Adam's uh, visions. And then the last one that I'll say, too, is, you know, it, it's interesting in how to assess uh, a president's legacy, uh, right? I mean, should you uh, assess it contemporaneously? Uh, should you assess it a couple years out? Or do we look kind of in the broad stroke of history? Uh, because Adams himself um, would admit that he thought his presidency was a failure, and particularly the progressive vision that he rolled out for the internal development of the country and the country's citizens. But at what time scale do you measure uh, the implementation of a vision? Uh, because it did fail. But we can also say in broad strokes, this is the exact contours of what the Whig Party and then what the Republican Party under Lincoln rolled out while he was president. In fact, it's the most progressive vision of the federal government, probably until uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency more than 100 years later. Uh, his vision of continental expansion of America's leading role, not only in North America, the Western Hemisphere, um, these are all legacies that don't that are not accomplished during his lifetime, but I think we have him to thank for. When he's 80 years old, John Quincy Adams collapses on the floor of Congress in the middle of a vote. He's carried upstairs to the Speaker's room inside the Capitol building, and two days later, he dies still there. The House organized a committee to make arrangements for his funeral, and on that committee was a young congressman. He'd only been in the House for a short time, but had heard several of John Quincy Adams' speeches. That congressman was Abraham Lincoln. Next week, we usher in a new era of American politics with the wild and controversial Andrew Jackson. Special thanks this week to our guests Charles Adele, Fred Kaplan, and Katie Zesma. Music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. Also, we have some cool things going on at WashingtonPost.com to mark President's Day. First, we finally published out our reading list to go along with the presidential podcast. So you can check that out online to see which books our guests have written, and also to see what other books we're reading along the way as we approach new episodes. We created two other fun things as well, special for President's Day, and one is a presidential history quiz, so you can test your knowledge, and the other is a March Madness-style bracket where you can vote on your favorite presidents and see who other people vote on and who comes out on top. You can access all of this from our main Washington Post podcast page, which is wapo.st slash presidential. You probably won't have a pen in front of you for that or anything, though, so just go to the Washington Post site and type in presidential and you'll find it. We'll also be hanging out in the comments section on that page for all of President's Day, so you should stop by, write some comments, give us ideas for upcoming episodes, or just talk with other people who are listening to the podcast about what you like and why you're interested in presidential history. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great President's Day, and we will be back next week to talk about Old Hickory. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.